Thank you, Obed. It's so good to be here at King's Cross. It's uh, been about a year since I was last here, and uh, um, I think my family is still on their way. Uh, I got a message from my wife that our, our little one fell down the stairs this morning, so yeah, that happens, um, real life. But uh, you'll be able to see the cute kids, maybe one with a little bit of bruise, but uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll probably walk in a little bit late. I, I can't tell you how much I'm thankful for King's Cross. Uh, I've been meeting up with Obed since even before the church began, uh, was a part of the, uh, the vision team meetings and things like that to encourage the church. And um, you know, I, I just never understood when a new church comes into the area that's solid, that teaches the word of God, is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, why other churches would ever feel threatened uh, by them. I, I, I told Obed from the very beginning, please come. There are lots of people here in San Diego that need to know Jesus. And if there's anything we can do to encourage you and help you along the way, we certainly want to do that. And so I praise God with you. This is so cool to be here a year later to celebrate God's faithfulness to this church and to that family. Uh, I'm so grateful for Obed and Elena and their friendship uh, their family has just been so special to us. We recently had breakfast together over at their home and uh, just really enjoy our times together. Uh, Obed and I, we meet up for coffee about every other week uh, just to catch up, talk about ministry, pray together. And uh, as a result, I'm consistently praying for, for you all and uh, just so thankful for what God is doing through this church and praying that he would continue to show you grace and faithfulness as you continue on in the work of ministry. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we open up his word together. And uh, I just uh, want to let you know, if you're taking notes, uh, I was uh, inspired by something that Obed and Elena has shared with me uh, and something that he had just touched on a little bit earlier today about how this is all about Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, the message title this morning is The Church is All About Jesus. And that's the theme that we're going to walk through together this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this time we are so grateful to you for your faithfulness and your grace to King's Cross. We thank you, Father, for your servant, Obed, who's been so faithful to work with the members here and to seek to do ministry your way, uh, to find his anchor and his foundation uh, in Christ and in, in your word. And we pray, God, that you would continue to bless this ministry moving forward. Thank you, Lord, for the for the friendship that our churches have and the mutual support and encouragement that they've been. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to walk with them and cause them to grow together in you. Father, give us hearts that are open to your truth this morning. Help us to know what you have to share with us. And I pray, God, that you would give us attentive minds, sharp minds to know your truth. Let it be a blessing to us, God, and use it to draw our hearts ever more to you, that we might see you more clearly, humble ourselves before you, and more faithfully live and uh, walk in accordance with your ways. And so, God, thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning, uh, I couldn't think of a better theme. I think this is the same theme I taught on last year, but we're going to take a little bit of a different spin on it. Uh, I, I was just talking to our, our college Bible study on Friday night about how uh, I am, in many ways, a rah-rah, sisboomba cheerleader for the church. I love the church. And if there's any topic I love talking about, 
It's the church. When, I, when Lighthouse Bible Church first started back in 1998 uh, here in San Diego, I was a senior in college. And so I was telling the collegians, I've, I've been in your seat. I've been where you were. And when the church first began, we had a pastor much like yours who emphasized the importance of the Word of God and, and taught us about the, the foundation of having a high view of God's Word that we are going to go back to his word to be our foundation, go back to his word to be our wisdom, to be our direction, uh, to be that light to our, 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 our feet and, and, and to help us know what we are supposed to do. I love that God gives us all the instruction that we need, that we're not left to just figure things out on our own. He doesn't leave it to us to invent ministry or invent the Christian life or invent what it means to live for him. He's laid it all out for us and made it absolutely clear. And it's such a wonderful thing. And, and it made sense to us back then to have a high view of God's word. And then I remember him instilling in us also having a high view of God himself. That rather than having a high view of man, we want to have a high view of God and exalt him and seek our ministry to, uh, to, to lift up his name and give him praise. And, and I remember that just resonated with all of us. And we thought that is such an amazing theme that we want to make sure that our lives are all about exalting Christ. And then he kind of introduced the third theme to the church, and that one kind of caught me off guard. Because we talk about having a high view of, word, of the Word, and that kind of makes sense, and we talk about having a high view of God, and that makes sense. And then he kind of talked about having a high view of the church, and that kind of threw me off a little bit. Because at least in my limited understanding, the only ones that really had a high view of the church were the Catholics. You're right? He made such a big deal about what church was all about. And, uh, and so he very, our pastor very carefully, very deliberately walked us through the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, and helped us to see how churchy the New Testament is. You really can't get around it. It's a very churchy section of the Bible. When Jesus talks to Peter in Matthew 16 and says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he talks about the protections given to the church in Matthew 18. And he talks about how the church is going to be built up in Matthew 28 as we go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that he's commended us. And then you get to the book of Acts and you see the birth of the church and the growth of the church. I love Acts 1.8. That kind of serves as an outline for the rest of the book. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And I love that the opening chapters of the book of Acts start in Jerusalem. And then when you get to like chapters 7 and 8, it kind of expands to Judea and Samaria with guys like Philip, guys like Stephen. And then you're introduced to a guy named Saul or Paul and, and he gets blinded, knocked to the ground, and, and miraculously converted, and his ministry takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Acts 1.8 serves as an outline then for the rest of the book of Acts, and you see through the book of Acts that as God is fulfilling the Great Commission, the vehicle that he uses to accomplish the Great Commission is the church. It's church planting every time. And so much so that the Apostle Paul, that was, that was what he devoted his entire ministry to. To plant churches, and if we went to a certain city and there was already a church established there, he would continue on and find somewhere else where that, the church had not yet been established. And he didn't see his work completed until elders were appointed in every church. That's why he left Titus behind. That's why he left Timothy behind, to help them understand how to do church. 
And so it's not surprising then as you walk through the New Testament. It's to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth, to the churches of Galatia, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Colossae, and so on and so forth. Even when you get to the books like, like Timothy, that's written to an individual, he writes to Timothy, I've written these things to you that you might know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. He tells Titus, I left you behind in Crete that you might appoint elders in every church. And you get all the way to the book of Revelation and you come to find that Jesus comes back for who? His church. It's a very churchy book. And, and I came to understand that by having a high view of the church and understanding all that the New Testament says about the church, I have a heart then that is Christ's heart. I have a heart that is the Apostle Paul's heart. I have a heart that is the Lord's heart. He is all about the church. And so I kind of want to walk through this theme very briefly uh, this morning and, and, and really help, I guess, this is the challenging statement that is going to kind of serve as the thesis for the morning, that your attitude towards the church is directly proportionate to your faithfulness in living a, in living a Christ-centered and gospel-centered life. That your attitude towards the church is directly proportionate to your faithfulness in living a Christ-centered and gospel-centered life. What do I mean by that? It all really begins with who we are as believers in Christ. It helps us understand what we're here for and understanding what Christ came to do for us and why we gather in times like this. We come together as a church because of who we are in Him and what He has accomplished for us, recognizing that we were lost in our sins, we were dead in our trespasses, Ephesians 2 says. That we were lost in our sins, blinded to the truth. We were so blind that if God put the way of salvation six inches in front of our face, we wouldn't even know to reach out and take it. We were so blind to our sin that we didn't want to know the way. God had created us for a particular purpose, to live for him and to take his glory to the ends of the earth. And we rebelled against that purpose and said, no, God, I don't want to do it your way. I'd rather do it my way. And the Bible talks about how when we are in our sin, that we're at enmity with God. We are self-proclaimed enemies of God. And I know when I say that, there are some people who say, well, I don't know if that's me. I never really said I have a problem with God. Maybe I don't live for him. Maybe I don't do the Christian thing. I've certainly never cursed God or said I hate him or anything like that. But again, it goes back to the very beginning and what he created us for. God created us in his image and told the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, his intention was for us to take his glory and take it to the ends of the earth. And instead of doing that, we shook our fists in his face and said, know what, God, we'd rather not live for you. We'd rather do our own thing. And when we live for ourselves, when we live for our own ambitions, our own desires, our own will, when we chart out our own path and don't give any consideration to what he created us for or what he wants from us, that is a life lived in rebellion against his plan, against his purpose, and against his holiness. And the Bible tells us that that sin that we commit against God is deserving of his wrath and his punishment. This is our condition. We rebelled against God. And the Bible tells us that in our sin, we become enslaved to it. It blinds us. It affects us from our heart 
out. Our sin is not just the things that we do that offend a holy God. Our sin really in every way defines who we are. So that every time we extend our hand to do something, it's tainted by our sin. Every time we think a thought, that thought is tainted by our sin. Every time we speak a word, even with the best intentions, everything that we do is tainted by our sin. The illustration that I like to use is like, and maybe I used this last year, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But imagine you're, on a, you're a kid, and you have a free Saturday, and you're out playing, and you find this giant mud puddle. And as a kid, you're thinking, this is going to be great. And you go ahead and you dive in, and you're just sloshing around in that mud, and it's covering you head to toe. And as you're playing in the mud, it dawns on you, wait, what am I doing? My mom has been inside this entire morning cleaning the house. And you're struck. Your conscience is just struck. And you say, I need to go and help my mom clean the house. And so you walk up to that front door and you knock, knock, knock. And she opens the door and you say, Mom, I'm here to help you clean the house. What's the problem with that? You cover from head to toe in mud. And even with the best intentions, even with every effort that you could possibly make to try and help clean the house, even in your efforts, you will muddy everything up. You can't do it. That's such a great picture of what our sin does to us. It affects everything that we are. It's not just the things that we do. It's who we are. It stems from the core of who we are. We're enslaved to it. We're blind in it. We're sick in it, the Bible tells us. We're dead to it. Our spiritual condition between, before our God is that we are absolutely dead. It doesn't leave us with a whole lot of hope. The Bible doesn't tell us that, that as a result of that, what we need to do is try really, really hard to be as good as we possibly can be. Again, even with the effort, our hands are tainted by our sin, mud from head to toe. We can't bring anything of worth before our God. The Bible tells us that all of our good deeds are like a filthy rag before God. But it isn't even just that we can't do it. Our sin has so blinded our minds that we won't do it. We wouldn't even want him. That's the way that we live our lives. God, wherever you are, that's where I don't want to be. If you're over here, I am going to run as fast as I can over here. And God, I would even rather be in hell than be in your presence. That's how dead we are in our sin. That's how lost we are in our rebellion. And so because of our sin, we deserve God's condemnation, but we can't do anything about our sin. We can't change our condition. We can't improve our condition. God doesn't say, meet me halfway, fix a few things in your life, and I'll do the rest. We can't do anything. And this is where the hope of the gospel comes in, that God sees us in our lost state. He sees us in our dead state. And for no other reason in Scripture than for his glory and his great love for us, he sends a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, where we can be made right with him. But this is the thing that God is absolutely perfect and he's absolutely just. And if the crime has been committed, the punishment must be paid. He can't just close his eyes and pretend like we never sinned against him. He can't just snap his fingers and pretend like none of the offenses were ever committed. Someone needs to pay the penalty. And the Bible says it's either going to be you or it's going to be someone else. And that's why Jesus came. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life on this earth, eventually, ultimately, to go to the cross and to die on the cross for our sins, to die in our place, to pay the penalty of our death so that we could live. And the penalty being paid in full, we could be brought into a right relationship with God, be restored to him, and it leaves nothing for us to do. This is such an amazing truth about the gospel. It isn't that Jesus goes to the cross and dies for our sins and then says, you know what? I did most of the work. Now you do the rest. There's nothing left to do. What an amazing truth that is. That he took it all upon himself and made it possible for us to be restored to God, forgiven of our sins, completely forgiven. And the Bible tells us that he not only wipes our sins away, not only forgives us for the things that we do, but I told, remember we said that our sin is a problem of who we are. He changes who we are. He doesn't just forgive us for the things that we've done. He changes us from the inside out. Ezekiel 36 talks about how there's this like heart surgery that takes place, that he takes out the heart of stone that's dead, that doesn't beat, and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats and gives life and pumps blood through the body. He gives us a new heart and changes us from the inside out so that we are completely different. Everything is different now for the one who is in Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. New things have come. Everything is different now. The old Patrick is gone. He doesn't exist anymore. I've been given a, given a new life and a new heart in who Christ is, and everything that I am now is defined in who he is in my life. This is that truth of Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and rose on my behalf. He gave himself for me. That's the truth of the gospel, that he doesn't just forgive us for the things that we've done. He transforms us from the inside out and makes us new. And what's the point of all this? It's just to say that my being a Christian is not just something that I do. It's not just a compartment of my life. It's not just my Sunday morning thing and my Friday night thing or my 10 minutes a day in the Bible thing. My being a Christian is everything of who I am. From the beginning to the end, he is the entire pie. He doesn't just take a slice. He infiltrates every part of my life. So that if I'm a teacher and I'm in Christ, I'm not just a teacher, I'm a Christian teacher. If I'm an engineer and I'm in Christ, I'm not just an engineer, I'm a Christian engineer. If I'm a mom and I'm in Christ, I'm not just a mother, I'm a Christian mother. And so on and so forth. It defines everything that I am because in everything that I do and everything that I say and everything that I think, I want it to be filtered through who I am in him. That my life might bring him greatest glory out of a thankfulness for what he has done for me.
Christianity is not just a compartment of my life. It's not just something that I do. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's everything about me. And that is true for every believer. And I'm not talking about some advanced placement, higher tier, you know, transcendental form of Christianity. What I'm describing to you is everyday, normal, mundane Christianity. Any person who is a Christian from day one makes that their confession. And it's no longer about me anymore. It's about Christ in my life. That's one of the reasons in the New Testament, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the first command that they're supposed to obey is to be baptized in his name. And I love that picture of baptism because you stand there in the water and that represents your old self. And when you go down into the water, it literally is a picture of your death and your burial. And I always tell our, our members at our church, praise God that Jesus rose from the dead because if he didn't, I just hold you under. Right? We identify with his death. We identify with his burial. But we also identify with his resurrection. And when you come up out of that water again, it symbolizes the new life that you have in him. The old things have passed away. New things have come. It's not just a compartment of what I do. It's who I am. What does this have to do with church? One of the most controversial messages that we've ever preached at Lighthouse Bible Church. It wasn't about abortion. It wasn't about homosexuality. It wasn't about cults or world religions. One of the most controversial messages we've ever preached at Lighthouse was on church. Commitment to the church. And I remember there was this huge uproar by our members. Like, are you telling me that I need to quit my job and just be at church 24-7? Are you telling me that I need to drop out of school and just be at church 24-7? I already give God Sunday morning. I already give God Friday night. And if I'm in a small group, that's another night in the week. You're telling me I need to give even more to the church? I remember just being so saddened by that response because first, let me just make it absolutely clear. What we're not saying is quit your job and just be here 24-7. And what we're not saying is, you know, drop out of school and be here 24-7. But that attitude towards the church exposes a fundamental flaw in the way that they understand what church is all about. Because when you look at the pages of Scripture, church is not something that we go to. Church is not a building. Praise God. Church is not Soledad Club, right? As amazing as this view is, I had to go out and take a picture. What an amazing view. You know, our view is of a parking lot. You have an amazing view here, you know. But church is not a building. Church is not a place that we go to. Church is not a program. Church is not just something that we do. Church is not just a Sunday morning thing or a Friday night thing or a midweek Bible study or home fellowship thing. Don't you understand church is who we are? It's who we are. The church is the people, right? We always talk about the church is not a building. The church is the people. But it's so much of who I am. This is how the Bible describes who we are as believers in Christ. And this is what I love about the emphasis in Scripture about the church. Because the Bible, as much as we like to talk about our personal salvation and our personal walk with Jesus and our personal growth and our personal time in the Word and our personal prayer, I hope you understand that the overwhelming emphasis in Scripture is not on your life personally. The overwhelming em emphasis in Scripture is on our corporate life, that having been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, we've been bought by His blood 
and baptized into a body. I love the description that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That we are all members of this body and we're all different, right? I mean, take a look around at the diversity. I'm not even just talking about ethnicity and race or whatever. I'm, I'm talking about backgrounds, age, abilities. There are things that you can do that I am terrible at. I've, I've always said that. If it, if it was up to me to come up with our church's website, we would have no website, right? We'd have an amazing food ministry, and that's about it, right? There, there, are, there are a lot of things that I'm not good at. I just simply am not good at. When my wife and I were getting married, uh, I designed our wedding program, and uh, I kind of worked through it. We have a graphic designer at our church. It was her full-time job. I think she gets paid hundreds an hour, and that's like her full-time job, but I didn't want to take advantage of that, you know? Uh, and, and she somehow got a look at the program that I had designed with its clip art and the whole thing, right? <laughs> and she said, oh, oh, Patrick. <laughs> the night before our wedding, she edited the whole, the whole thing, redid the whole thing, printed out all the programs for us, and they were absolutely gorgeous. And I just love the fact that she took what God gave her and used it to be a blessing to the church. And understood that if, if God had gifted her in that way and given her that set of talents and abilities, that she wanted to use that to be a blessing to the people around her. And she's done all sorts of design stuff for our church, from bulletins to, to you know, retreat programs and things like that. And it's always so gorgeous, so professionally done. And I love that she's done stuff for other churches and charged them. And we get it for free. <laughs> We have a food ministry because back in the early years of the church, I was the food ministry, and that was such a sad thing. Um, I know I'm more of a foodie, but I was more concerned about the budget. So every time we had a family meeting, every time we had a members meeting, our meal was Costco pizza, Costco salad, soda, and water. Every time, every time. And it eventually got to be known as manna and quail because the Israelites grumbled in the wilderness. Every time we brought that meal to our members meeting, it was like, ah, not again. Back when we were in Egypt, we had leeks and onions. You know, here we are in the wilderness eating this weird stuff, right? Um, I'm totally off my notes. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so there was a family who came to me and said, hey, what's our budget for the food for members meeting? And would you be okay if next time we just took that budget and we did the food? And they brought a new meal at the next members meeting, and there was great rejoicing in the land. <laughs> there was great rejoicing. You see, as the, as the Bible describes it, when you come to Christ and you understand that he is your Lord and Savior, it's more than just a personal transformation. He brings you into a body. And God has designed it such that we need one another. He's designed it that way. That's why he deliberately did not give any one person here the ability to do everything. That's the image that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible because of how strange it is. As he talks about the body and all the members working together to form a healthy body. And I love what he says. He says, the whole body is not an eye, is it? Gross. And you think about that. Like if there was a giant eyeball up here, right? The size of my body just rolling around. Imagine how big that contact lens would be right? As you stick that in, the whole body is not an eye, is it? To which we would answer emphatically, of course not. Of course the whole body is not an eye. An eye standing by itself is not the whole body. If, it was the whole, if the whole body was an eye, where would the hearing be? 
And that's God's way of telling us that we can't stand on our own. He hasn't designed us that way. I mean, you might be a pinky finger in the body. You might be a toe. You might be a pancreas. I don't know. But God's intention was not for you to stand alone. He brought you into a body. And the other thing that that emphasizes then is that unless every member of the body exercises together and works together, the whole body can't be healthy. I mean, imagine, don't, don't do this, but imagine you went home and took a cleaver and took your thumb off. Do you think that would just affect your thumb? No. I mean, I walk across a dark room and stub my toe, and I'm in a fetal position sucking my thumb and crying. It affects your whole body. I can't imagine cleaving off my thumb. When, when one part of your body is not functioning correctly, your whole body is affected by it. Last summer, I, I twisted my ankle at a volleyball game, and I was in physical therapy for over like eight months. And my doctor was telling me I can't run and I can't jump, all because of my ankle. And it's the same way with the church body. Unless every part is healthy and unless every part is functioning, the whole body suffers. And this is the way God has designed it, such that we need one another. He hasn't left us to do this by ourselves. And what a blessing, because when we're discouraged, we have a body of believers to encourage us. When we're hurting, we have a body of believers to comfort us. When we stumble and fall, we have a whole body of believers to pick us up and to bring us back to the way. I think no other way is this emphasized more in Scripture than just by the commands that were given in Scripture and what it means to be a Christian. That we love one another. We serve one another. Right? Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another or give preference to one another. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Forgive one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. Build one another up. He has designed it such that this is who we are. Church isn't just something that we do. And it certainly isn't just somewhere that we go. Church is who we are. And I love the testimonies that were shared earlier. That you come in and you find a place where you belong. But I would add, not because of who you are as an individual, but more so because of who you are in Christ and what he has done for you so that we all have a common testimony. It's one of the great things about doing missions. Our church goes to the Czech Republic and Argentina almost every year. And I just love that we could go to the other side of the planet, go to the other hemisphere, and find believers in Christ who were saved by the same gospel that I was, and have the same testimony, and worship the same Christ, and have the same commitments. I love that. Isn't that amazing that wherever you go in the world, you have family because of what Christ has done for us? Let that be the strength of King's Cross. Let that be the encouragement of this church and the focus moving forward. That this church is all about Him. And who we are is all about who we are in Him. And what we are doing is all about what we're doing in Him. Because as your pastor so wisely said this past week, and I'm sure many weeks before that, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this time together. What a joy it is to fellowship with one another. 
and to be challenged by your truth and to know, Lord, your will for our lives, which is so clear. It just jumps out at us from the pages of Scripture that you've called us together, that we might be a source of mutual blessing and encouragement and grace. Father, we thank you that not only have you saved us from ourselves, you've saved us really to each other. That we might walk this walk of faith hand in hand. To be a source of encouragement and blessing, support and protection. God, we lift up your name and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.